Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. Why do trees talk? Why are there dinosaurs? Why do people die meaningless deaths? Is there other life in the universe? Why do I have to be monogamous? Do you want answers? Have you searched literature and philosophy for meaning? For years, man has combed the pages of history, searching for enlightenment. Finally, the answers are here. We at the Epsilon program know religion is a deeply personal experience. Join us, and you will be brought to light. Kiflam, I'm the Honorable Chris Formage. All you have to do is read and understand the Epsilon tract, and the secrets of the universe will be open to you. The Epsilon program. This time, God, it's personal. Relationships can seem like an eternity. You asshole! What were you doing with my sister in that hot tub? Relieve the pressure. Ice. Chill that bitch out with ice. A diamond lasts forever, but your relationship might not. A diamond is love. Rock hard and frozen in time. Luckily, most women are shallow and materialistic. Oh, a diamond! So you do love me. Nothing says I love you like a lump of carbon mined by wage slaves in Angola. I don't even know what I was mad at you about. Do you want a blowjob? Passion. It can be purchased and it can be overpriced. Ice available and very expensive at Decock Diamonds. All right, guys, I'm back after a semi-long hiatus. Sorry for the lack of episodes, but we have been getting beaten at work like we are the redheaded stepchild, so... uh Sorry, I just haven't had the energy to do it. It's good to have consistent work, though. So we're going to start off with some scary stories I found on the internet, and probably finish there as well, but this first one is called, I've Met the Devil, and I'll Never Forget It. We haven't met. <laughs> you know when many people say the devil is just a figure and not real? I'm not a religious man or anything like that, but there was a moment where I only believed in God or the devil. I mean, I'm a hardcore atheist. But at a point, in my 8th grade, I met him. And it wasn't as easy to express without a shiver on my back. I was a troubled kid when I was in my late years of middle school. Hurt people for money, sold drugs in 8th grade, fuck yourself. And did small, petty acts of crime. I wasn't a troubled youth, but just very angry for a lot of reason. I think that's the definition of a troubled youth, you fucking retard. But anyway, to the story, I remember this incident very well, and I remember the words I heard. I remember I was smoking a cigarette around by a lamppost in this place called Emerald Heights, a shit apartment-like town. Mmm, yeah, sure. I was just there waiting for my pal to arrive so that I could butt some weed. I felt something in my gut that something was a bit off, like something telling me not to stick around any longer. I do remember someone walking by the road near my apartment complex. He was well-dressed, not fancy, but someone who looked like they worked in an office. Business casual, eh? He walked up to me, and I assume he saw me smoking and asked if he could have one. 
I was smoking Newports because that's all I could get at the time. <laughs> no, we won't sell you these Marlboros, you little shit. But here, uh, take these Newports. That's okay. No, don't worry about it. He looked familiar, but yet I could recognize him, but he felt normal. I did hand him a cigarette, and he seemed creepy, like he wanted to butcher me. Perfect guy to smoke on the corner with. I always smoke with the guys that, that stare at me like I'm a steak. At this point in my life, I was going through a rough time in my life. Yes, you said that. I was a part of a bad crowded and wanted out. I was also suffering through severe depression and anxiety from my lack of social skills. Lack of literacy as well, I imagine, probably didn't help. And the man spoke very sweet, like aged honey whiskey. You age honey whiskey? <laughs> you bring that out at the party once everyone's already had too much to drink and they don't know that you're spending $8 on whiskey to get them drunk. I remember him asking me a haunting question. You wouldn't have to be, you wouldn't have to be 14 now? Why is that haunting? I was creeped out that he assumed my age, and he was correct. I was 14 at the time, and it awed me out how he knew. I was hesitant to speak with the man, but my nerves made me ask, How did you know? Do I know you? He stayed paused and just inhaled his cigarette and exhaled slow and re responded with, I know you. And it creeped me out even more, so I stepped back and was genuinely scared out of my mind. He stepped forward under the light and spoke with a serial killer tone. How would you know? I've known you for a bit. Knowing you're in a pickle, let me help you out, boy. The fact that he knew was a fucking blood rush of fear, but I only could respond with the man. I knew he knew what I felt, and I responded, How so? What can you do to help me the fuck out? He raised his free hand and asked for me to shake it. I knew after I did, I instantly regretted it for the rest of my life. What, all 13 years of your life? You've got, got hopefully a long time more for regret, you little shit. He gripped hard and tight and said something that will haunt me till I fucking die. Ugh. He said, and I fucking quote, I know you because I was there when you were born, kid. Oh, Uncle Irwin. <laughs> I asked that if you let me take something from you, I will grant you what you want in the end. And I agreed like a fucking idiot, but the end was just the worst. He responded after, remember, kid, when you sell yourself to the devil, prepare for your hellish twist. If you ever die for the sins, you cast it upon yourself. You forever be my servant. Now if you die ever, your soul is mine. He eventually let go and continued his walk back into the night. This is just the funniest homeless man alive. <laughs> if I were homeless, I could see myself doing this. You want to make a deal? Give me one of them cigarettes and let's talk about your life, boy. I was there when you were born. Shake my hand. Shake it. See you in 15 years, you little shit. I'm the devil. <laughs> As a note to those who have done wrong, note if you bargain with the devil, you will forever be a servant. He doesn't care who you are or what you're, you've done. He takes all souls to hell. I sold my soul to the devil, and till I die, I won't ever forget that honey whiskey voice. So he sounded like an $8 bottle of Jim Beam. Sounds like somebody listened to that song, Dance with the Devil, and got inspired, but didn't actually sell their soul to the devil for anything. What did he do? He didn't give you anything. He just took a cigarette and shook your hand. I think I think you don't fully understand the concept of deals with the devil, kid. Come back in 20 years. Hi, this is taking forever. Oh, honey, what's wrong? I can't seem to scrape the paint off this mirror. Oh, here, honey, I got you something. Wow, a golden razor blade. I can't wait to show the guys this. Where'd you get it? Blotto's, of course. 
gold-plated razor blades, pocket-sized mirrors. Nothing could be more convenient for the hard-working, clean-shaven man on the go. Blotto's has the life accessories you need. And if you have diabetes or just want to play with the medical equipment, stop by Blotto's this weekend for our shoot 'em up sale. Blotto's, we make daily habits fun. Life isn't about money or your job. It's about having good friends, a nice car, and nailing as many women as possible. That's why I choose Bush Cologne. The name Cologne stems from the Roman Empress Agrippina, who would sleep with anyone. I know. I did. And I'll sleep with you, too. God, I love myself. I smell great. Bush Cologne. Get your sperm swimming. This next one is called What Happened to Grandpa's Eyes. I love my grandfather, but he made me sick. <laughs> Physically ill down in the pit of my stomach. This pathetic whimper of a man. That's not what that means. Sitting there gray and shriveled with those narrow rubber tubes up his nose, keeping his heart beating. He spawned me, so your grandpa's your dad. I came from him, and now I just wanted him to die. Die. And immediately, die. Just to rid me of this god-awful feeling. He can't breathe. He lugs around that green metal tank all day and can hardly pull it. His wife is dead. He lived in a house all his life, moved to an apartment when it became too much, and then she died. Now he's in Extended Stay America and we're paying his rent. It's pathetic. I love him, but I loathe him. A mini-fridge, and inside of it are a few cans of Diet Coke and a crumb cake. The extent of his possessions, it made me vomit. I know. I knew that he was going to be dead within the year. But his lumbering, shuffling, and groaning and coughing. He was a disease. The world had no use for him. He was rotten. At first, I didn't want to see him often because I regarded him as a premonition of myself. But I'm the only one who could ever. It wasn't going to be difficult. He had breathing problems. And always a vacant pillow beside him. I was coming later and later, spending longer and longer hours into the night. He didn't question my presence because I'm his grandson and his brain has gone sour. I'm not insane. He would slip his stringy, withered legs under the drab white bedsheets at 9.15 every night. Every time he did, my heart began racing. Racing. And then I'd tell myself to get a grip. It raced harder. He didn't even know I was there. When he turned in, I would kiss his forehead and tell him I was leaving, but I didn't. I'd open and shut the door after flicking off the lights and then sneak into the bathroom, sometimes for hours, and hide. Then I would crouch and creep slowly towards his bed and stand over him and watch. My hands would shake and go white. It was exhilarating and dreadful in equal measure. At first, I pulled the chair up, studied his every move, but he didn't move much. He slept on his back, and often his left leg would twitch, and the synchronized patterns of his breaths broke momentarily. I just watched. I would stare at his pale, gray, sunken face and his repugnant, hanging jowls. The oxygen tank hissing in the dim orange glow of the parking lot lights slipped through the drapes, standing there upright like a little person. Then my eyes would meander to the pillow beside him. I'd stare at it until I fell into a seized trance. The pillow began to take on a horrible face. I'd inch around to his side and wait, listening and making sure. I would reach out and touch his oxygen tank, gently tracing my fingers in circles around the top, tracing them along the valve and across the oxygen tube. The first time, I began to shiver so hard I had to leave, mortified of the possibilities of my own will. I got into my car and sat in the darkness of the parking lot, winded, as if I just sporadically sprinted as far and as fast as I could until I collapsed, and yet no exertion. 
I sat still. After the third night hovering over him, I reached out and pinched closed the tube, obstructing the flow of air. He shuddered. A chill ran up my back and to the tips of my fingers. I let go and my heart began to palpitate. I did it again. And again. Four times. And then I left. Hours later, I laid down in the bed and my veins still throbbed, heart pulsating and hammering. A voracious rush I couldn't quell. I started to go back and back and back again and on the sixth night, I stood on his wrong side and with great caution, sunk my knee into his bed slowly and waited. Fifteen minutes passed, then thirty. I broke out into a cold sweat. I couldn't focus and yet I'd never felt so alive. I reached for the pillow and ever so carefully grabbed a hand, handful of it. If only he'd have awakened in that moment, he'd have died of fright. The dark outline of an anonymous, tensed figure lingering over him. A demon. The seventh night, he shook himself awake, and I crawled into the bathroom like a roach in the sunlight. I hid in the bathtub behind the curtain, listening to him trickling. I could literally feel the blood rush from my face as my arms turned white. I thought I would faint, and then something changed in me. My hands balled up into fists, hidden behind a thinly veiled hanging sheet. I wanted him to notice something askew about that curtain. An off-colored pattern? Is somebody there, he would ask. I was ready. All of my disgust and loathing and hate and vengeful energy was bubbling out of my pores so hard I could taste it. I was prepared to pinch shut his nose, press my palm over his mouth and gaze into his eyes until they rolled up into the back of his head. But he didn't. He sighed, flushed, and sauntered out. It would be the last vivid experience my grandfather would ever have. His entire life boiled down to a limp, useless penis and trickling of urine into a porcelain bowl and somewhere in some city in some state in some empty dark hotel room his money life's work exhausted and regressed to a fizzling tank supplied by a hospital nothing left nothing was his i drank his last coke as he was deep in the trenches of some obscure dream i was pouring with sweat i thought about shutting off the valve and watching him just drift into the afterlife peacefully but it also might have woken him up However, I couldn't allow him to see another waking moment, so as the blood flushed from every limb, appendage, and face deep down in the painful, pestilent space at the pit of my stomach, I imploded. My hatred and contempt pouring deeper into me. I thought it was supposed to erupt outwardly. I'm not insane. My knuckles a translucent, ghostly white, I pounced. I squeezed the pillow beside him and ripped it from its place. I didn't think he'd ever wake up, but when I held it high over my head, his eyes were already opened and bulging. I'd never seen him so alive. He screamed, Who are you? A tense black figure, a demonic manifestation, whatever it was, it wasn't me. I thrust the pillow down over his face and pressed my knees into his chest against his heart. How he thrashed and wheezed. My deepest fear is drowning. I wondered what his might have been. His heart continued beating for a long time, even after he went limp. When I lifted it off his mouth, his mouth was agape and crooked. It was horrific. His eyes had indeed rolled up into his head, and his arms were dangling off the side of the bed. I dropped the pillow and began to convulse and hyperventilate. The energy and labored breaths heightened and stopped, and then heightened some more. I thought about the girl at the front desk. She'd noticed my excitable, nervous disposition as I rushed past her, but I couldn't rush. Instead, my focus came back to my grandpa. I placed my hand over his chest. He was definitely dead. He was dead, I swear it, but his heart was still beating. Well, then he's not dead, you fucking idiot. I smothered him again, longer this time. His face remained cold and ghastly, unmoving. I realized the oxygen might have, might have been keeping him alive still, so I removed it and smothered him a third time. 
You can't smother somebody if they're hooked up to an oxygen tank, you fucking mouth breather. I broke and began to sob. I cried and cried unconditionally. As I pushed with all of my might, just die already. And finally, I let go. The pillow resting over his face. I felt his chest and it was still. And when I removed the pillow and placed it neatly back next to him, I looked at his face. He was staring right at me. What had happened to Grandpa's eyes? Surely it was something natural, right? One of those freak, unexpected things? I might have screamed, but I'm not insane. I backed away slowly at first, and a sliver of orange glinted in a sharp pattern like a blade across his face, across his eye. His eyes followed me out, burning. Obscured by the shadows, I saw them move, I swear it. I put my hood up and raced past the desk, but it was vacant. I got in my car and looked at his window. I thought I'd seen him peel the curtain back and leer through the pane, ghoulishly mouthing all the hateful, thick, tongue slurs in his tepid imagination. Suddenly, spring to life with the fever of a devil and come crashing through the glass, chasing me at warp speed until I ran out of gas and then strangled me to death. Those eyes, those dreadful fucking eyes. I would have cut out my own to unsee them, but the memory's burning into my mind. I haven't slept in ten days, at least not well. I go in and out lightly, but the visions are horrific and material. I can't go on much longer. I have a gun next to me tucked away in the bottom drawer of the nightstand. And every night, Grandpa comes crawling from the sea, a slithering nightmare looking for me, lurking relentlessly. I can feel him walking somewhere. He's coming. The eyes. I can't stand the eyes. I'm not insane. I just wanted him to die. I continue to trace my fingers across the muzzle of my gun. The cold steel and polyurethane. A bullet rests in the chambers. I'll give myself a 50-50 shot. I slipped my finger against the trigger and rested my hand on the pillow beside me. A gun pointed at my temple. Just a flinch. A momentary loss of muscular coordination in the night. I've been dozing. Eventually it has to happen. I wonder whose eyes I'll see when it does. The end. Let's be honest about things for a second. Really honest. You came out to the West Coast to get away from something. Everyone does. Let's face it, the Midwest is full of retards. That's why we've got the fastest growing population, a massive economy, and absolutely no history or culture. You used to be a dork, but you moved here, and suddenly you're cool. San Andreas is a land where you can be who you want to be. Change your name, come out, lie about your age, form your own religion, call yourself an actor but wait tables. It just doesn't matter out here. Everybody's at it. Until the awful moment old friends or family come to visit Janice understands maybe it's time to change your identity don't let bad memories blow your cover we'll teach you all the things you need to alienate your family quick they'll never think of visiting you again select from a list of weird religions that involve burning things singing children's songs backwards and loads of television worship we'll select a member of another race or life form for you to claim as your soulmate and your dietary habits will go pacific too people come to San Andreas to escape their past we'll help you lose contact with friends and family fast Janice it's time to invent the new you. What happens when five eligible bachelors welcome a little girl into their lives? Hey, it's my turn in the bathroom. Non-stop hilarity. My Five Uncles, the sitcom with a lot of heart. Hey, Gina, welcome to your new home. You sleep in there, and we all sleep in here. Ugh, whatever. Does anyone have something to smoke? <laughs> it's the show that shows family values exist, even in unconventional families. Oh, what are you guys doing in there? We're just flossing here. here. It's a brand new show taking hilarious comedy in a whole new funny direction. I don't get it. Why don't any of you guys have a steady girlfriend? And they learn some lessons about life and love along the way. Come on, guys. 
group hug. I'm an emotionally abused orphan. Can I get in on any of these group hugs? No, you stupid bitch. <laughs> My Five Uncles, Thursday nights on LSBC. All right, this next one is called, at my therapist's request, I've started keeping a journal. It seemed simple enough at first. Start writing a journal, she said. Organize your thoughts. And sure, it helps. I've been writing in it for a month or so now. It's a chance for me to vent, to get out my frustrations, fears, and concerns. It allows me to break up the days, and when I look back, they seem like less of a general blurry mess of hours and more like a clearly defined 24-hour segments, which is good, I guess. It's still depressing, though. Sometimes I make the mistake of reading back through my writing. I don't seem to be making any progress. It's just bile and anxiety and worry. The day I, the day I wrote for yesterday, for example, it's an, an echo of an entry I wrote four weeks ago, perhaps a foreshadowing of an entry, entry for tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. Ugh. But let me tell you, something really rather curious has begun to happen. So I'm sitting there alone in my room, right, super early this morning, gnawing away at the skin around my fingernails, hair's a mess, and, and I'm in the same pajamas I've been wearing for the last three days, so on and so forth, when I decide that now is a good time as any to make a journal entry. It's 3 a.m. So I definitely won't be going to bed for another few hours, but hey, it's not like anything else is going to happen in that time. So I open the journal up and thumb to the latest page, and what do you know? There's an entry that I don't remember writing. That's exciting. Am I experiencing psychosis? It's my first casual thought. I check back for blocks or gaps in my memory for the day. I think really hard, but nothing springs to my mind. The passage isn't even in my handwriting. It reads, I'm sorry to hear about your pain. Share with me. A burden shared is a burden halved. I read it over and then think again. Did I write this? Huh. I start writing my entry for the day below the curious message, but I begin with, Thanks, journal. It's nice being able to vent. Anyway, here's a list of ways I felt like shit today, and I write my entry. I write about my friend, my last and only friend, how he must be feeling in his grave right now. Once I'm done, I close the journal up and forget all about the strange passage and waste away the next few hours with some, some discord nobodies until I cannot keep my eyes open anymore. My dreams are hazy and unmemorable. Then when I awake, I go about my day. I'm not due another appointment with my therapist for four more days, so no need to leave the house. My head hurts. I clamber to my feet and look through my apartment for a glass still clean enough to be reused. Settling eventually on drinking straight out of the faucet. Just wash the glass, you fucking idiot. I wipe my mouth on my sleeve, careful to avoid looking at myself in the mirror, but not quite careful enough to avoid catching a glimpse of my journal down there on the carpet of the living room where I left it. I remember the message, and I decide to open it up. Thumbing through the pages until, fuck, I mumble out loud, realizing that a new message has been written beneath my latest entry. What the hell kind of Harry Potter bullshit is this, I say to myself as I read it through. I'm always here to listen. I'm sorry for the problems you're going through. I'm sure you must miss your friend. Tell me more. I stare at the page, flick through the journal, but beyond this are only blank pages. I mutter to myself in disbelief. I did not write this. There's no way. This looks like it's been written in wet ink, like proper... Pen and ink, ink. And thinking about it, I'm not sure if I even own any fountain pens. I write the following, heart beating, but still not quite believing. Has the Chamber of Secrets been opened? Is that you, Tom Riddle? I slam the book shut, listening to the sound of the birds beyond the window. Should I open it again? How long does it take to reply? I give it about 20 seconds, then open it right back up. My stomach lurches at the sight of a new message. 
No riddles, I just want to listen. Any secret you share with me will be kept safe. I let out an awkward laugh. I don't think the journal knows what Harry Potter is. Fuck. So this is real. It's happening. I pushed aside some empty bottles on the table to make room for the journal, and I returned to the bathroom, quickly splashing my face with some cold water before heading back. I settled down on the couch and grabbed the notebook, turning it over in my hands. It's just a regular journal. I bought it myself. The corners are bent. There's a tea mug ring stained on the cover. Nothing special. I open it up to the last page, and I write back. Should I be afraid of you? Is there anything you want from me? I hesitate, then close the book. I give it a minute, then reopen it. You do not need to be afraid of me. I just want to listen. Share your pain. I'm a little freaked out, I'm not going to lie. I gently close the journal and head to my laptop, pondering. I spend the rest of the day in the early hours of the night researching shit like this. Creepy journals and diary and whatnot. The hours fly by, but as it's drawing closer to the to the time that I typically fall asleep, I discovered frustratingly little. Just fan fiction and various lunatic image board forums. I slump back down onto my couch, stretching my arms and back. The journal sits patiently on the table, so I pick it up. And as I do, I have, as, as I've done for the past month and a half, I write my entry. This time begins with, okay, I'm putting some trust in you, journal. I'm glad I have you to vent to, and I appreciate you listening. I spend a lot of time, I spent a lot of time researching mysterious books today. If I'm being honest, I still feel pretty terrible, but I guess it was nice having someone to think about other than Michael. I miss him so much, and every day I just feel more and more guilty for not being there for him. I write a little more, and then with a sigh, I carefully close it. The temptation is there to immediately reopen to see if the journal has a written response, but I decide to wait until morning. My REM sleep is broken and disjointed as my dreams are blurry and unsettling. I do not sleep well. And when I awake, in a pile of my clothes, my first thought is of the journal. I blink and look over to it, perched on the edge of the table. I stretch and rise and head to the couch. The journal appears to be slightly stuck to the table surface. I am reminded, again, of the squalor in which I live. Grimacing, I peel the book away and wipe it off on my pajamas. Leafing through the pages to my latest entry, and sure enough, there's the reply. I can tell your guilt runs deep. It isn't easy when people let you down. I do hope Michael didn't suffer, and that's it. I read the message a few times, and then I read it again. This message does not make me feel good. It does not help me in the slightest. In fact, it serves to drain my energy almost entirely, despite only waking up a few minutes ago. I curl up into a ball on the couch and play these words over and over again in my head. I can tell your guilt runs deep. It isn't easy when we let people down. I do hope Michael didn't suffer. It isn't easy when we let people down. It isn't easy when we let people down. It isn't easy when we let people down. A sudden burst of anger provides me just enough energy to sit up and reopen the journal. I grab the nearest pen and write a response. Why are you saying these things? This isn't helping me at all. Don't you have any advice? Who are you? Should I be concerned where you come from? Tell me the truth. Are you in the journal or are you using the journal to send me messages? Come on, tell me. I close it with a slam. I'm waiting, counting my breaths. I count to three. I open it back up to the same page. The reply reads as follows. I have little advice to offer, only that by sharing your woes with me, I can ease your burden. The process may be painful at first, but you will be fixed with time. Unload your misery between these pages. Let me take it from you. That is who I am. I can do this for you, Caroline. Unload your misery between these pages. I grimace at the imagery. I'm sitting up straight now, though, so I propel myself forwards to try to make, try to make something to eat. Toast will do. I leave the journal where it is on the table for now. I think about it, though, as I potter around my place. It was an unusual, 
and interesting at first. Sure, amusing even, but it's quickly becoming rather unsettling. I really didn't like the last message. I didn't like the way it made me feel, but this is something supernatural. Stuff like this can't just be ignored. So I keep writing in it. It's addicting. I ask it questions, trying to probe who or what it might be, but these are all deflected and ignored. I soon give up. Instead, my entries into the journal become just that, entries. I start writing in it more and more, pouring my guilt and misery into the pages as it requested. It listens. It listens and it gives me responses that sting and ache. You were doing well here. You need time alone to process. It's better not to infect others with your misery. You were alone, and this is what you need. Michael sounds like a good person. It's a shame he didn't have a stronger support network. <laughs> but as I said, it's addicting. This is a journal that writes back, for fuck's sake. Part of me feels like I deserve it. Another part of me wants to, wants to believe what it said. I want to believe that the hurt is temporary, that by doing this I will be fixed, that the journal can take my misery from me. I'm desperate here. I'm just so tired, so tired of feeling the same every day. At least the journal is different. It's new. I peel the journal from the side of the counter, doing my best to wipe away the sticky strands that connect the surface of the book's bindings, opening it up to the latest page to write some more. I don't wait until the end of the day anymore. I just write whenever I feel like it. The responses get worse. Do you deserve to feel better, Caroline, given all that you've done? Suffering is healing. Do you truly believe that you're a good person? Consider this. Would a good person have done what you did? Write to me your initial thoughts. You're holding back. I can sense greater pain within you. Share it with me. I need to hear it. I bring the book up to my next therapy session. It's grimy and gross. I physically show the pages to my therapist. I point at the messages and go almost as far as to shove the thing in her face. She's not impressed. Why do you think you've been writing these messages, Caroline? She asked me. I chew on my tongue. I told you I didn't write them. They appear in the journal by themselves. Watch. I write an entry and close the journal up, though even as I do so, I realize that I'm about to look like a buffoon. It's basic rule number one of supernatural shit. With one eye closed, I tentatively reopen the journal, and of course, the journal has not written anything back. This time, I make eye contact with my therapist, and she raises an eye at me. I laugh awkwardly. All right, humor me. Let's say the journal does write back by itself. What should I do? What should I tell it? My therapist pauses for a moment. In thought, she says, we heal in different ways. You're allowing the journal to be overly critical. But what if it's right? Do you believe it's right? Well, I don't know. You know yourself better than anybody, Caroline. Do you want the journal to be right? No, I don't. She folds her arms across her lap. Well, there you go. I hesitate. There I go. Is that it? She opens her hands. I leave the session feeling frustrated and uncertain. The bus ride back is long and bumpy. There are no seats, so I stand the whole way. Slumping back down onto my bed when I get home, I drop the journal on the sheets besides me. What the hell am I going to do with you? I ask it, sighing, then reaching over immediately to pick it back up. And I realize to my disgust that the book has already stuck to the sheets. What the fuck? Why does this keep happening? I pull it from my bed, revealing that in the few seconds that it was there, it already bound to the sheets with ooze of long, sticky, red and pink strands. I actually inspect it properly for the first time. It's you, I mutter as the strands snap one by one. All this time I thought it was just my place being dirty, but this slime, whatever is it, whatever it is, it's coming from you. The substance leaks from the spine of the journal, and it looks a little bit like blood. I open it up. More, Caroline. I need more of your pain. Share it with me. You have a long way to go before you can heal. I need your shame and your guilt and your loneliness. Give me more, Caroline. Well, supernatural or not, I won't be dealing with this shit anymore. Enough is enough. I dump the journal in trash and screw around on my laptop, doing my best not to think about it. 
My fingers itch at the end of the day as my instinct to write my entry for the day kicks in. I glance over to the bin, but I let the urge pass through me and instead just curl up in bed to sleep. When I awake the next day, the journal is back on the living room table. I say living room, the section of my tiny apartment that has a couch, a TV, and a, and a bottle and can covered table in it. The journal appears larger than it did last night, bloated almost. A reddish-black ooze has seeped out from the binding across the little table. With a grimace, I peel it away with a series of squelches and tears. Some of the red-pink strands hang down from the cover as I open it up. Our time is not through just yet, Caroline. Your misery is still burgeoning. Share it with me. I write a response. No. And with the book in hand, I unlock my front door and head down to the building stairs. I dump the journal right into the large trash receptacle outside and return to my room, breathing a deep sigh and trying to do something. Anything to keep my mind from the journal's allure. I even clean my place up a little bit. Or at least I throw the cans and bottles that are on the table into a bag and then stop because I'm feeling guilty that I'm not separating materials and recycling. The bag sits slumped, half full, in the corner of my kitchen. I tap away at the keys on my laptop. Tap, tap, tap. My fingers itch. I shoot a look over my shoulder, and there it is on the arm of the couch. The journal, already leaking its goo across the fibers. For fuck's sake. I tear off my headphones and stride the length of the room, grabbing up the journal. It feels warm. I start tearing out pages indiscriminately. Get out of my head. You're not helping me at all. You're just feeding all my hatred and sadness. A torn page drifts to the floor by my feet. You don't deserve happiness, ever. I know you. You have shared everything with me, and I know you deserve to be like this forever. So share with me. Share with me, and then at least you won't be entirely alone as your days and nights flitter away. I grab the page up and scrunch it into a ball and throw it in the trash. I grab from a nearby drawer a bottle of lighter fluid and pour it into the trash can. I flick back the little metal wheel of my lighter and set the edge of the journal on fire and dump it in the can. After a moment, it takes light. Starts to burn and blacken. I open up my window and hold the bin half out, careful not to breathe in the fumes as it melts and sizzles. Once it's a little more than a pile of wet and sticky ash, I allow the bin back inside, dumping the waste into a larger trash bag and hauling that downstairs too, throwing it over my shoulder and back into the dumpster. By the next morning, the journal has returned to my desk. It sits there by my laptop, patiently awaiting my attention. The, the desk beneath and around the journal is stained. The book's cover has begun to crack and split. Thick, sticky fluid leaks from these creases in the skin. With a slow sigh, I open it up. You can't throw me away. Give me your pain and hurt. I write back, I don't want to. It will make you feel better with time. The pain is your wounds healing. When you are healed, you will see you belong here, alone, with me. I want to feel better. Share your pain. I'm always here for you. I close the journal. It almost seems like it might be on the verge of twitching or convulsing in my hands. Ooze leaks from its side and drips heavily down onto the side of the desk and the floor below. I ignore the terrible little book. I stop writing in it. I stop engaging with it. The day passes. But it's always there, bulging hungrily. One morning I find it open, pointed right at me. It's the first thing I see when I wake up. Your pain grows. Your pain deserves to grow. It's all your fault. The only way to heal is to share it with me. Give me your hurt and your sins. I stuff the book into a bag and bring it along with me to my next therapist appointment. I hold the disgusting book out in my hands and my therapist recoils. She looks at me with concern. Caroline, what have you done to this book? I haven't done a damn thing. It's disgusting, right? It's certainly interesting looking. Are you trying to express yourself with its design? 
I released some air through my nose in frustration and rubbed my eyes. I haven't been sleeping well. I haven't been sleeping much at all recently. It's worse than I thought, and it's getting worse than before. And so the days go on like this. Long, tortuous, tortuous days. My sleep schedule gets entirely reversed, and I scarcely see any sunlight. Yeah, welcome to my nightmare, asshole. The journal taunts me. It seems to change locations every time I turn away. Sometimes the pages are open. And then one terrible day, the journal shows me something new. Its pages by this point are perpetually curled at the edges, stained with blodges of red and black. It hums and vibrates and leaks wherever it lays. It's always warm. Turning the pages reveals pink and red fleshy strands that connect them all together. Bulbous masses bulge from the cover on the spine. And today, on its open page, it shows me a drawing. It's never done that before. Not ever. The drawing is crude, to be honest. It's of low quality, like something a four-year-old would produce. It kind of looks like a girl. But the label, the accompanying label, is very clear. It's really clear. In that dark, wet, intricate ink, it reads, My Caroline. The fear and revulsion I feel feel at the sight of this drawing is difficult to put into words, but it's a critical moment. It's a critical moment because it's when I vow that things are about to change. The process is not instant. It's slow and gradual. But I decided I'm going to defeat the journal at its own game. I'm going to trick it. So I hatch a plan. And I return to writing my daily entries. Every day I write a new entry, but this time I lie. I don't share my guilt about Michael's death, about what might have been his final moments. I don't write about my shame and my general issues or my self-hatred regarding it. I try to make it as light and as sickly sweet as possible. I write about how great I feel. The journal is pleased that I have returned to my entries at first. Though this pleasure soon turns to dismay. It doesn't seem to like the new entries. I start receiving the same stock response over and over and over again. You're holding back. Share with me your pain. Concerned that the journal might be able to sense outright lies, I start focusing on half-truths and small victories. I write about nice things I saw through the window. When I run out of things, I step outside the apartment for a while to find some new ones. I write about the good memories I had with Michael, about the fun things I saw about fun things I saw online. I start actively looking for new things to write about so I can continue fill, filling up the pages so that I can continue battling the journal's bile. The journal dislikes this. You're distracting yourself from your pain. You must share your pain with me, Caroline. Stop running. These entries will not help you. You're rotten to the core. These frivolities are a disgrace to Michael's memory. The last one actually makes me laugh out loud. I'm getting to it, I can tell. So I keep on writing every day, sometimes twice a day, just to spite the damn book, I actually do clean my place. I even separate the recycling. Turns out it wasn't so difficult after all. I open the window, let some fresh air in. I even fling the journal right out of it just for fun. It returns to my room within an hour, of course, but still, a good chuckle. I change my clothes, I brush my teeth, all that good, boring, normal adult shit. But what do you know, the journal starts leaking less. It was well-fed, sure, but now it's a great, bulbous mass. The ones across the covers have burst, and the dead, flaky, sticky skin that's left behind is gradually wearing away. The journal struggles to follow me around. I dump it in a trash can at a local park, and it takes a whole day to get back to me. I think about taunting it, about writing you're getting sloppy in my latest entry, but I don't. I dare not change my strategy. It's working. It is working. And as a rather pleasant byproduct of this strategy, I actually start feeling a little better too. I address some of my entries to Michael himself, sharing with him how much better I'm doing and the journal really hates it. I can almost feel it seething in its bitter replies. Michael is dead. It's your fault. He wouldn't help you even if he could. Only I can help you. And you know, it's funny. I've been blaming myself for Michael's death for a long time. But when something as bizarre as this journal actually blames me for it, when this thing is actually genuinely trying to convince me that I am responsible for Michael's death, it puts it into a new perspective. I realize how ridiculous the notion is. 
I was always there for Michael. He knew this. He could have reached out, but he didn't. Am I blameless? No, I'm not. But it's far from my fault. I share this all with my therapist, and she seems pleased. I'm so glad you've been improving, Caroline. You've worked so hard, and it's nice to see that it's beginning to pay off. I hesitate. Yeah, I reply. I guess it is. Are you going to keep on writing in the journal? I consider that. No, I don't think so. It was good for a while. It helped me being able to express myself, I guess, to talk to Michael, but I think it's all... I think I've done all I can now. Some people like to write, and they like to write every day, and that's fine. I'm just not one of them. She nods and leans back in her chair. Well, that's okay, Caroline. If you feel that's the best, then that's okay. And I do. I do feel it's the best. I haven't been able to get rid of the journal entirely, by the way. If I try to throw it out, it still finds its way back into my much cleaner apartment after a few days or a week, sometimes a bit longer. But, you know, that's all right. I don't write in it anymore. It's unable to taunt me. It's nothing special, just a battered old flimsy notebook. So I stuffed it away in the back of my bookshelf, and that's where it's going to stay. It's a nice day out today. I think I'll go outside. Wow, that was pretty fucking good. That is an, that's an interesting look at the grieving process. I gotta say, that was, uh, that was pretty well done. Sometimes the law is not enough. Did you file the subpoena in the McPherson case? No, it wasn't urgent. I filed an AO440. AO440? I know, I know. So I went shopping for these loafers. Has anyone got a stapler? Got a lot of forms, and there's a slight breeze in here. Law, because paperwork is dramatic. Catch it Thursdays on Weasel before it catches you. Sexual realignment used to require expensive surgery, months of hormone treatments, years of therapy, and you still ended up looking like a drag queen. Now you can let the woman inside come out in the privacy and comfort of your own home, and it's as fast as this. Slice. See? Now I'm a woman, thanks to Rapidite. This do-it-yourself sexual realignment kit includes everything you need to go from Brad to Brenda in a jiff. It's just snip, chop, stuff, and swallow, and away you go. Do it in the bathroom and surprise your family with a new you. Comes with an instructional video, rusty knife and tourniquet, two aspirins, and 47 pounds of estrogen. It's all you need. When it's time for a change, you want it fast. Rapidite, the do-it-yourself sexual realignment kit. Be exactly who you want to be. All right, guys, on that note, that's going to be the last story for today. I think that's a good note to end it on. Pretty fucking strong. Uh, I have merchandise coming out soon. I have Anthology of Horror t-shirts, hoodies, whatever you want. There's a couple different designs, the first of which will say Anthology of Horror on the front, and on the back it will say, I am a motherfucker. Not for the faint of heart, but neither is this show. So if you want to support the show and you want to buy some merch, message me on Instagram at DukeLandis17. That's right. Message me on Instagram at DukeLandis17. Also, I've said it before, but if each one of you guys donated a dollar to this show, every single one of you that listened, I could buy my own recording studio within a few months. So uh, if you guys want to donate to the Patreon, that would be much appreciated as well. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash anthology of horror. All right, guys, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, stay spooky.